The Insurance Brokers Podcast is brought to you by Sarah Myerscoff of Boston Tullis. Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerscoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Alistair, thank you very, very much for joining me this morning on uh, the Insurance Brokers podcast. It's great to have you here, and I'm very excited to uh, have our discussion. Well, Sarah, thanks for having me. uh, It should be good, hopefully. I think so as well. I think what might be really interesting is if we could start with who is Alistair? Give us a bit of background to you because you've got an incredibly interesting uh, career history. Okay, blimey. Um, so I'll, I'll give you my insurance history rather than going deep into my personal history. But um, So I've been in the industry now for probably going on 26 years and spent the initial sort of five or six years in with an insurance company. Um, People will recognize the name Independent Insurance. I worked for Independent for a while uh, until the day of its demise. Uh, And then I moved into the broken world at that point. Um, And I've worked for sort of three of the the main brokers, uh, Willis, JLT, and I've been now at Marsh for the last 13 and a half years. Um, Quite an interesting career with Marsh, started in the UK, then spent four and a half years over in Singapore as the head of sales for our Asian business and then spent two years after that in Jakarta as the CEO for our Indonesian business, and then returned back to the UK two and a half years ago to, to be CEO of our, uh, our corporate business here in the UK. Wow, so lot, lots of travel involved. Yeah. So one of the things that we talked about last time we, we chatted was about one of your sort of defining moments whilst you're out there in Indonesia which if I can describe it as stop being British can you have a chat explain where that came from because I think it's around leadership styles uh, and I think it's quite an important learning curve and and will be of interest to to many uh, business leaders listening yeah so uh, yeah stop being British so I when I went out to to Asia obviously I went in to do this regional sales role and part of that role was engaging with our 12 different countries um, across the region, building a sales infrastructure, building sales discipline. Um, and probably at that point, I'd only ever worked in the UK. And I went out and I had a, a, a fantastic uh, boss over there, who's, who's uh, our regional CEO in Asia, David Jacob. Uh, and after about three or four months out there, GJ sat me down and he said, look, brilliant, tenacity, fantastic, you know, strategy, fantastic. But can you be a bit less British? And I said, okay, um, talk to me about that. He said, well, you're, you're quite forthright, you're quite blunt. Um, and what it sort of, what he was meaning was you have to be a lot more culturally aware. So how, how I was communicating the strategy with our Japanese colleagues versus our Vietnamese colleagues or our Singaporean colleagues, whilst the strategy itself was based on the same thing, the communication style, the cultural differences of how business is done in different parts of the region are very nuanced. Uh, and therefore, you know, that ability to be, and we're going to talk about it a bit later, agile in your leadership style is so important in terms of resonating with, with colleagues and with clients. Um, so it was a really, a really beneficial piece of feedback early on, um, which I think set me up to be 
uh, more successful than perhaps I would have been because I was having to tailor my my leadership style um, in the region. So it was a, it was a great piece of advice that I've kind of kept with me. And equally, kind of what it's what it's bred in me is the is the need to really understand the individual, um, both that's either from a client perspective or from a colleague perspective when you're leading them to really get the best out of the person because we're all unique, all of us. Uh, you know, it's the one thing we have in common is that we're all unique. Um, and so the importance of, of getting under, under the skin of people and understanding what motivates them and culturally how that works is so important and ever, ever more so than, than now. I think that's really interesting. One of, one of our clients at the moment has global reach and they are doing a big push at the moment into Asia. Uh, and, and we're having this conversation around sort of initial contact points with prospects and, and how, how different it is to the European group. Uh, so I think I, I might go and tell him, stop being British. Yeah, I think, I think the other thing is to be really, is to be really cognizant of how skillful the, the local um, colleagues are. I think perhaps historically sometimes expats have gone out and, and kind of tried to preach. Um, and I think the mantra that I always had was, I don't know better, I know different. So this is what I know from a mature market like the UK. So here's how I would approach a particular challenge or opportunity. How would you do it? And then combining the best, the best of both worlds. I think that, that differential of making sure that you really understand the local nuances of a market, uh, particularly as you expand into emerging markets is, is really important. Absolutely. Um, have you got any other practical sort of practical things that you've changed as a result of this kind of learning curve? So speaking to the individual, I don't know better, I know different. Those are two really good sort of mindsets to be in. Can you give us some practical examples of, of things you've had to change? Well, I think I've, one of the things I had to change quite significantly in my, in my uh, time, particularly in Asia, and especially in, when I did my two years in Indonesia, was blending professional and personal lives. And I don't mean, you know, but I'm, what I mean is I was very much, I have a professional life and a personal life. And as a result, I think people don't necessarily get to know the real you in the professional sense. So when we were, when, when I was in Indonesia, you know, the culture of that country is very warm, very inclusive, um, just the most wonderful people. And being kind of standoffish doesn't work. You know, the, the basis of that of that country is about community, being part of something. Um, you know, and, and so what we what we built in the business there is building a community, a marsh community that people felt proud to be part of. So I think some of that, and that's again is about getting to know the individuals, understanding their personal circumstances, you know, how does that influence how they're able to work? And I think we've seen that probably even more so in the last 14 or 15 months, I lose track of how long we've been in this blessed situation in terms of the importance of, of really understanding the motivations of people um, in order to get the best out of them. And, and I'm no different, right? You know, I'm, you, know you, have, you have certain challenges at different times, either professionally or personally. And it's how do you enable someone to manage those challenges in order that they continue to be happy, you know, have healthy mental health and ultimately deliver what they want to and what they need to from their career. 
I think one of the, I don't know if you remember, it was a few years ago and there was a, a somebody was being interviewed, I think on BBC or Sky News. And, um, and he was obviously in his home office and his child came in and then the wife came in afterwards trying to drag this child out and it went viral all over social media. And if you think of the differential in mindset from that point in time to where we are now, um, hopefully almost post-COVID, but this kind of webinar, being in your home office, having kids coming in, that blend of professional and personal life has, has been massively impacted for the positive uh, by, by COVID. And the difference is incredible. And I suppose that's maybe sort of the Indonesian culture was already a bit further ahead in that respect. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, you know, it's different. I mean, I, perhaps I was just blessed with a, with a fantastic group of colleagues in Indonesia, but I think my experience of the country was very much um, a very welcoming, warm basis. And, you know, people couldn't do enough to help you in whatever situation you're in. And, you know, obviously in Indonesia being six foot four um, and, you know, I've got a Scottish heritage. So in the sun, I don't tend to go brown. I tend to go slightly red. So I stood out quite significantly in different parts of the of the office and in the shopping centres and what have you, but it was, it's very inclusive. I think that for me has been one of the huge benefits that's come out of COVID. You know, even if I look at my own exec team, I mean, we're a, we're a regional business, so I've got, you know, members of my exec team that live all over the country. And one of the challenges you have when you're so geographically dispersed is how do you build that kind of agile, fast-moving team environment at a leadership level? And we've done it, but we've done it remotely initially. You know, in the last 15 months, I think we've got more done than we've ever done. As an exec group, we're closer than we've ever been. We've shown our personalities. You know, you find out stuff about people. I didn't realize they were a cricketer or I didn't realize they did that. I didn't realize they had, you know, three dogs or whatever it is. So I think that connectivity builds a far stronger culture in the business. It also builds a far more inclusive culture because what you realize is everybody's different, um, regardless of you know whether it's gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic, everyone's different. And actually, we just want you to do a great job. Um, and I think that's that connectivity that's being created through, through weirdly being sent remote I'm not quite sure how you define it, but it is, it is immense. And I think there's a business, certainly in my part of Marsh, and I would say in the broader Marsh business, I don't think we've ever been more connected and had stronger connections than we do right now. Um, and if you'd said to us 15 months, we're going to send you all home to work from home, it'll make you more connected. I think everyone would have gone, really? How does that work? Um, so, yeah, I think it's very exciting that, you know, despite the horrific stuff that people have had to endure over the last 15 months, I think as a as a business, and I think that includes our connection with our clients. I think there's a massive opportunity in the future just to be even more connected and and as a result more powerful in terms of the role that we as a, a broker can provide to our clients. I can certainly um, sort of attest to that from my perspective, because um, the last fifteen months or so. Uh, probably the last eight months particularly have been really um, pivotal in our business and this ability to connect with people remotely uh, has enabled us to work with uh, clients in South Africa, Germany, Scotland, whereas previously we'd have been, you know, spent more time traveling than we would actually sitting at the office. I definitely think there's 
there's some real benefits that have come out of, of quite a, a negative situation. I suppose it's probably, and I might be putting words into your mouth, it's quite interesting where you've developed sort of the Indonesian marsh community and COVID's almost supported you bringing that ethos to, to what you're doing here. Is that right, fair to say? Yeah, possibly. I, I mean, I'm a great believer that humans want to belong to something. It's in our intrinsic DNA, I suppose. Um, and it's how do you create an environment where people feel comfortable to belong to something. They understand what they're belonging to. And ultimately, they understand the direction of travel. You know, so, you know, I came back two and a half years ago and we have a phenomenal group of colleagues in our business. But for me, we weren't quite kind of, we didn't have enough human connection. We weren't ambitious enough about the business goals. And when you give people that, that kind of sort of striving view, it's amazing what people are capable of. Um, so I think for me, and we did it, you know, I did that in Indonesia. I set a financial goal um, in Indonesia when I first started. And they hit the goal at the end of last year. And I got on the 1st of January, a load of messages from, from the leadership team in Indigo. We, we did it, PAC. So PAC is, is sort of respectful sir in Indonesia. We did it, PAC. And that was, you know, and, that, and they were so proud of it. I hadn't done it. They'd done it. <laughs> you know, I hadn't done the delivery with clients and winning your business. I hadn't been there for a year and a half of it. Um, so I think it's a great, that community and the sense of really belonging to something successful. You know, the human, look, I mean, look, if you look at, if you take the positives from what's happened over the last 15 months and all the amazing stuff that people have done, you look at, you know, the frontline healthcare workers and how they, you know, worked extraordinarily hard, long hours. The human person, spirit, is capable of so much with the right mindset. And it's all about that mindset. I think you're I think you're right and I, one I've just come off so we've been doing a series of of uh not seminars like workshop work streams with uh, a, a company and we've been talking around uh sort of knowledge that's available to sales staff process and how you make sure that 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 process is embedded and then how you sort of coach the coach and some really interesting stuff's coming out of it and um one of the things that we talked around this morning was this recognition versus reward uh, particularly if you're looking at new from existing business, for example, reward in terms of financial reward is actually sometimes less impactful than recognition. And it's because of that human need to belong, to be um, sort, of, sort of your ego's need to have praise and yes, you're doing the right thing and validation. Uh, so I think the reward recognition argument is quite interesting here. I also think just a simple thank you culture thank you for doing something. You know, when I came back uh, a couple of years ago, I got a load of thank you cards printed in the old days of printing, you know, non-digital. Um, and I used to handwrite, you know, someone would say, we well, you know what, we've just secured this renewal or we've just, you know, we just had some fantastic client feedback or whatever. I used to handwrite a quick thank you card. And for me, we have, you know, and, it, and not just in the marsh business, but in, you know, all, all in, the whole insurance broking. Um, so we have a lot of people that work damn hard to look after their clients uh, and to help their clients to navigate the risk, the risk landscape. And sometimes just a simple thank you. You know, thank you for working late or thank you for, for 
you know, going out of your way to help that person. We all like it, me, me included. I'm not, I'm not immune from the thank you culture. So I think just that recognition to your point is, is so important. And again, that's a sense of, that's back to a sense of belonging and being part of something and being recognized for being part of something. I think is so important about creating that positive culture in the organization. I think so too. And I'm quite interested in um, one of the things that we've talked previously about is this sort of idea of being more dynamic in terms of your leadership, bringing in sort of getting rid of the old ideas of the type of people and from where you need to employ and what their working day looks like. And you've got some interesting ideas on this, which, which I, which I really like. Do you want to talk a bit about it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the huge, you know, I think one of the huge positives to come out of this horrific 15 months is our ability as an industry now to attract talent from the whole country. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you look at my business, we're centered around 16 sites across the UK, predominantly in major cities. And we would have probably historically looked and talked to potential colleagues who are within a commut commutable distance, a daily commutable distance of an office. So somewhere between an hour to two hours probably, which is crazy that people used to spend two hours getting on a train, but we all used to do it. Um, now, we might say to someone, look, you only have to come to the office once or twice a week, in which case actually you might be prepared to travel a bit, a little bit further out. So that's a huge opportunity. I think also, you know, one of the issues we have as an industry is at a certain juncture, particularly in, in female uh, colleagues time you know they have to take a career break because they have to you know go and look out you know have a family and some some women are comfortable with that some women you know don't want to to do that but with the new environment that ability for working mums to work more flexibly is such a positive thing for this industry um and it really sort of excites me that you know people can have a career and have a family and potentially have hobbies, heaven forbid. And <laughs> if you do it, you can do them all well. You know, in Asia, it's slightly different. So in Singapore, there's a real, you know, you have, a, there's a Filipino helper culture where, you know, they become part of the family, they look after the kids. So there's a bit more flexibility on childcare. One of the challenges we have in this country is either availability of affordable childcare or just, you know, the fact that, people used to say well i've got to commute i've got to be on a train at seven o'clock which means it doesn't work whereas now in the new world that we're going to find ourselves in we don't have those rigidities we have flexibility and certainly in our organization the go forward word is absolutely flexibility um because i think it's a huge benefit for us to attract more talent retain more talent um and just you know i, I talk we don't necessarily talk about work life balance but more about work-life choices. Um, so I'll give you a great example of that. Um, last week, my son was playing in an exhibition rugby match. He's, he's 14 and almost as big as me. Um, but it started at far past five. In the old world, I would never have got to it. But I left the office half past four, got to the game, watched the game, then ultimately you log on later, but that flexibility means that I get to be good at my job. I also get to be a half decent dad as well. 
Um, so I think it's a, we've got a massive opportunity in an industry to either um, attract people back to the industry who've left, uh, and I think a lot of that will be uh, you know female colleagues who had to make the choice to stay at home with kids. You know, equally we have some some male colleagues that do that. But I think, and then geographically, you have people go, you know what, I don't want to live in the suburbs of the city. I want to live in the Peak District. And you can go, okay, no problem. You can still work for us living in the Peak District. We will require you to come into Manchester or Leeds once or twice a week. But other than that, you can sit in your home office in the Peak District and do your job. So I think it's it's a huge opportunity for us as an industry to, uh, to accelerate the attraction of talent and retention of talent. I, I think you're right. And I think just talking from somebody who's got three young kids and runs three companies, that juggle is real. The yeah. ability to not have to be on a train going into London every day is incredible. Um, and the, the flexibility is, is critical. But you mentioned work-life balance, work-life choice. It's a really interesting use of the words there because what the Western culture tends to have done is you've got work and you've got life and they're on you know separate ends whereas I think what you were saying in Indonesia is they're very integrated and the reality of life is that they are integrated and I think COVID allowed people to realize they are not two separate entities you are not two separate entities living in one body and actually that flexibility um, that mindset just allows uh, people to be be a bit more transparent and a bit more vulnerable which ultimately gets better results so i think it's really interesting i love your um concept of purposeful travel yes i think that's really interesting do you want to explain yeah i mean how often have we all traveled because we feel we go well i need to go to that office i'm just going to go but what's the purpose of you going there you know i was in london last week and i had a I, it was deliberate purpose for my trip to london but it's three hours for me from bristol either end that's six hours of my day that, you know, and, in, and invariably you don't, you can't really work because I'm not a massive fan of getting the laptop out on the train because you never know who's sat around you. You know, we have confidential information. If you drive, you definitely can't work because you should be focusing on, on the road. Um, so I think that travel, you know, do I, do I really need to make the trip or can I do it just as effectively using the technology and the skills we've learned? Um, Again, that helps people make work-life choices. You know, quite often for me, I've missed parents' evenings because I've been in London. Well, actually, when you look back and you go, well, actually, of the meetings in London, four of them were internal. So nowadays, I'll do those via Zoom. I won't need to travel to do them. I think also that includes purposeful commuting. So the office for us is still a very important part of our culture for collaboration, for getting colleagues together, for training, for working on clients. But if, for example, you've got a day where you're writing a renewal report or you're writing a new business report, do you need to be in an office to do that? Do you need to travel for an hour and a half either end of your day to sit and stare at a screen and type? Well, you might want to, but you don't have to. And I think that that flexibility. I think certainly from a Marsh perspective, we've always kind of had that flexibility, but it's always been possibly with a slight squinted eye look to go, do I have really have that flexibility or not? Not really sure, don't really want to. And then that comes back to the conversation we were having about agile leadership. Our leaders need to be able to manage remote teams and teams in the office concurrently in the new world, because you're going to have some colleagues in the office, some colleagues not in the office, um, and I think we've spent 50 months 
learning agility, but, but at the moment, everybody's remote. So everybody's in the same position. I think as people start to go back to offices, whether that's five days a week, two days a week, one day a week, that dimension will change again. So the ability for people to lead based on output rather than presence is very important. In the um, early days of COVID, um, through Boston Tullison in conjunction with the CII, uh, we ran a series of uh, mental health well-being webinars. And some of the feedback that was coming from specifically account execs and account handlers was, but I can see that so-and-so has been online till 10 o'clock, or I can see that so-and-so was online at, at 6 a.m. So this idea of what my colleagues are doing and, and sort of social proofing in that respect is quite a difficult hurdle to get over if you've got people that are continually going in the office for whatever personal reasons they may have and the people that decide actually homeworking's better for me. I think that's quite a different, uh, quite a difficult thing to get over as a leader. How would you approach it? I think it is very difficult because if we're going to give people truth, you know, give flexibility, then that some of that's going to happen naturally. I mean, I'm one of these horrible morning people. So I'm up bright eyed at 5am going, right, I'm ready for the day. So I might, be online. I might be online at six because that's the way my brain works. But that I'm not at line on six. I don't want people to see that I'm online at six and go, oh, the boss is online at six, therefore I need to be. No. So we have to go back to understand the individual, understand, make sure they understand what's required of them for their role and make sure that they have everything they can to deliver in that role. And ultimately it will be based on, for a broker, it's based on how happy are our clients? Are our client, is our client retention good? Is our client growth strong? Because if that's the case, then actually things are working well. If we start to lose clients, clients get fed up, you know, they're not getting response time, then that's a different issue. But I think it's, it's giving people the comfort to understand, you know what you know you've got to do, go do it. Leading by outputs, I think is a really yeah. good sort of key phrase. And I think the importance, you know, I use a phrase, one of, my, one of the first things I said to the exec, my exec when I came back from Indonesia, I want us to lead with kindness. And so you, some people go, what do you mean by that? I said, well, kindness and softness are not the same thing. So we want to be kind to people, but we still expect people to deliver in their job. You know, we have targets here, we have budgets here, we want to grow. You know, I'm horribly competitive, um, you know, and, and I want to be the fastest growing business in March, et cetera, et cetera. But we treat people with respect and kindness as our default position. Now, that respect and kindness has to be earned and continually earned. And that's not just people that work with me, but me to, you know, people that I work for. But it's so important that that is the core of a culture because when people feel like they belong and they're treated with respect and kindness, you know what? Everyone will do more than they think they're capable of. Um, you know, you know what it's like, you know, even if, I remember as a, as a teenager when, you know, a teacher or your mum or dad said, you can't do that, you mustn't do that. And my first reaction was, don't tell me what to do. Um, whereas actually when you say, you know, this is what you expect of you, we trust you to go and do it. And what's been amazing in the last 15 months, certainly from, from the business that I look after, 
is what a phenomenal group of 600 people would have in this business who just get stuff done despite homeschooling and having to look after, you know, shielding family members. I mean, it's just literally, I think if you'd tried to do it as a project, it would never have worked. But it just shows you what amazing, if you get the culture of belonging and kindness and trust, right, people will deliver for you because that's inherently what they want to do, not what you're telling them to do. I think that's a key differential, isn't it? When you can make it something that that person wants rather than sort of the cracking the whip. I think that makes all the difference. What, um, what I'm quite interested in, and we're shifting slightly, but I think it's very relevant to, to what we've been talking about, is the, the impact that the current state of the market is going to have on the role of the broker and how we are working in this, I hate the phrase, but new normal. Well, I think the role, the role of the broker is always to represent the best interest of the client, of our clients. And I think where, you know, we've got a lot of clients who are in a state of flux, quite often, in some cases, very positive flux in terms of changing their business model, new areas of opportunity and growth. And the role of the broker is sort of twofold. One, to make sure that the existing risks that they face as they run their business are catered for adequately by the insurance market and also priced for correctly. And I think that's sometimes the juxtaposition between brokers and insurers because, you know, sometimes I think the market can underwrite on an industry basis rather than an individual account basis. So looking at clients and individuals, I mean, that's a sweeping statement. I, would, I, don't, I don't want insurers to be up in arms with me, but, you know, there's a case of sometimes they'll say, well, actually, we don't want to be involved in that industry sector. When actually within any industry, industry sector, you have brilliant clients who are very well risk managed, very well managed generally, and you have other ones, other companies that aren't. And I think it's important to get that differential. Um, um, I think the other thing is how do we as a broker work with our insurer partners to develop products and coverage that are relevant for emerging risks that are coming down the track, um, whether we can see them or not. You know, nobody saw the, the size of the risk that we've just, that we've just faced. Um, but the importance of brokers to provide detailed advice, you know, insurance, I think, if anything, over the last 15 months, clients realize it's not a commodity purchase. You know, the future of the broker is around providing accurate advice based on industry sector, um, knowledge of a particular geography or whatever it might be. So I see the role of the broker to be even more important now than it's ever been as we come out of the pandemic. The market is the way it is, uh, you know, and certainly from our perspective, we're seeing a huge amount of interest from both our existing client base and other clients around how can you help me on risk as opposed to how can you buy me insurance two things that you said there that resonate with some of the the work that we've been doing with a couple of clients recently um one of them is around this idea that the um as a as as a uh, an, a client facing uh, account exec your role shifted from being a problem solver to a problem finder and I think that's quite an interesting dynamic to think through because, like you say, emerging risks uh, that we may not be aware of, 
being able to look at all aspects of a client's business and identify those potential weak spots is, is really what, what the role is about, which I think is, um, is really important. And one thing I just want to pick up on, we're doing some work with an insurer at the moment around um, specialist panel discussion points, uh, videoed for um, sort of educational marketing content for, for the broker panel. And one of the things that we've been talking about recently is in, um, in the care sector and how many, uh, some of the sort of generalists have exited the market leading to a bit of a capacity problem. And actually uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, products that are not sustainable in that space. So they've sort of moved, trying to move into a really proactive risk management position which has a massive role for, um, you know, for, for the broker in, in, in these type of instances. Yeah, no, look, the two, the two aren't independent, risk and insurance, by, the very, by their very nature. And I think the importance of understanding a client's risk in detail is, is really important. I think, you know, the problem, I think you become a problem solver and a problem finder um, or a, a, a crystal, you know, having some degree of crystal ball is helpful. Um, but I think importantly, it's about, um, I think as an industry, we have a responsibility to the broader economy to help facilitate growth and recovery. You know, if you think about our, what role insurance plays and risk plays in the economy, it's, it's everywhere. And without insurance, stuff doesn't happen. You know, planes don't fly, trains don't travel. So as an industry, we need to be really careful that we don't stifle areas of economic opportunity because we're unable to provide adequate insurance coverage. So I think it's really important that as an, as an industry, we are providing advice and risk management um, products and insurance products that enable our, our clients both as brokers and insurers to go do what they do best, which is run their business, grow their business, develop new products, you know, expand into new territories. I think we hold a really important role in, not just in the recovery post COVID, but the success of, of, of economies in the future, just as we have done in the past. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that, not a gap per se, but one of the things that I noticed in these these conversations that we're having in the, the lead up to the, the panel series is, um, and it's back to peop, individuals and perceptions, and, and you can broaden that out to um, industries and perceptions. So in conversations with insurance around a particular sector, there are certain drivers that influence their thinking, you know, underwriting result, et cetera, et cetera. When you're talking to the um, MD of a multi-site care home, very, very different drivers. And I sort of see that the role of the broker as, as, as bringing those two things together. So practically, practical example was discussing the, the, um, the capacity in the market for various care home products was, was one issue. When I was speaking to the MD of a care home, she was saying, my bank staff are a problem. And they're a problem because they're going in and out of 15 different care homes every month. How do I deal with that? So it's just it's just taking the sort of conceptual and the sort of big global ec economical issues uh, and business issues and into the sort of practical day to day uh, concerns, I suppose. But, but I mean, it boils down. It's, it's a bit like leadership, understanding your 
colleague base and the issues they're facing. For our clients, that's absolutely our job. Our job is to understand what are the issues they face as a company? What are the industries that are facing their industry? So what are the seismic shifts that are happening in an industry? What is the impact on you know, an organization's ability to, to operate? And you, know, you mentioned the care, the care home sector. I mean, that's quite heavily regulated. So what are regulatory changes that are impacting those businesses? And then how do we articulate those issues to go find the problems or identify opportunities you know, without wishing to just talk about problems? and then be able to work with the insurance market to say, right, well, you've got this perception of what this is. Actually, that's not actually the case. Here's the main issue. Um, you know, and that's, that's our, our job is almost a translation role to translate what are the issues facing an organization at the front line of running their business and how do we as an industry give them the comfort to go do what they do best. And that's, that's the role of the broker is to provide that that translation, um, not to say that insurers don't understand it, but of course we we live and breathe it every day face to face with clients. Absolutely, and I, I think that's a, a really sort of positive note to, um, to, to build on and to sort of end on is that it might be, um, we might be going into difficult economical times, difficult markets, et cetera, but that does provide some huge opportunities to, to find problems or opportunities that your clients might be facing and then to offer a more round robin that's probably the wrong word approach to, to solving them that's not specifically insurance focused but risk management and sort of all things business which uh, which I think is uh, the way forward. Yeah I mean I think we have the word that we use a lot in, in Marsh is possibility. What are the possibilities that we are able to deliver to our colleagues? What are the possibilities we can deliver to clients? So how do we promote that possibility to, to clients to say, you know what, if you want to go expand into that area where you see a growth opportunity, we're going to help you to realize the opportunity by getting you some form of either risk management structure around it or some sort of financial protection through a vehicle, through the vehicle insurance that enables you to go and do that. And I think we almost have a this makes sound it sounds a bit grandeur. We almost have a duty as a broking fraternity and as an industry to be able to provide that detailed support and advice to clients and companies to, you know, as I said before, to go do what they do best, which is running their own businesses. Mm, absolutely. Um, I think uh, final question for you, Alistair. If you were to give some advice to the independent broker now, uh, what would that advice be based on sort of what we've been talking about? To the in, well, independent broker as in, as in an individual or an organization? Uh, as in uh, your uh, provincial broker that's maybe up to 20 employees uh, cracking on through COVID and, and the market that we have at the moment. Uh, well, blimey, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give advice, whereas I work for a very large organization and I don't necessarily always understand the, the pressures that, the sort of provincial broker would face, but I would imagine it's something they know very well, which is truly understand your clients. And, and you know, I think it's, a, it's advice for all brokers is we are a professional advisory firm. So always focus on providing the best possible advice to a company. Um, and that, that, that is the, the ethos we work on. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be one to tell a provincial broker how to, 
how to run their business because I've never done it. Um, but my view would be, you know, whether whether you're dealing with a, a dental practice or a major PLC, understand the business, understand the client, and then, uh, you know, you're the vehicle for them to get on with running their business. Absolutely. Alistair, thank you so much for your time and your input. I think it's really valuable. Pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.